Micah chapter 6. I want to give you about four divisions of this sixth chapter briefly. Verses 1 through 5, you have the words of Jehovah to his people. And then verses 6 and 7, you have Israel's answer. Israel's answer to what God has said. And then verses 6 and six through 8, you have the moral demands of Jehovah. The moral demands. And then verses 9 through 16, the rest of the chapter, you have the Lord must judge them. The Lord must judge them. I'll repeat that. The words of Jehovah to his people, 1 through 5. Israel's answer, verses 6 and 7. Uh, the moral demands of Jehovah, verse 8. Uh, the Lord must judge them, 9 through 16. This is a very interesting chapter. And if you want to look at verse 1, please. It says, Hear ye now what the Lord saith. Now remember each division of this book. We started out in chapter 1 and verse 2. Hear all ye people. In chapter 3, verse 1, says, Hear I pray you. In chapter 6, verse 1, Hear ye now what the Lord saith. So these are three different divisions of this book. So the first division covers from chapter 1 through chapter 2. The second division, chapter 3 through chapter 5. And the last division comes from chapter 6, 1 through the rest of the book. So as you look at these words, it says, Hear ye now, in chapter 6, verse 1, what the Lord saith. Arise, contend thou before the mountains, and let the hills hear my voice. Hear ye, O mountains, the Lord's controversy, and ye strong foundations of the earth. For the Lord hath, hath a controversy with his people, and he will plead with Israel. You know, Israel did not always, and has not always, and does not even yet please God. We find that he has to call them to account time and time again. And he did in the Old Testament. And their problem was they wouldn't listen to him. He says, Hear ye now what the Lord saith. That's verse 1. And then when he says in verse 2, Hear ye, O mountains, the Lord's controversy, and ye strong foundations of the earth. In other words, he's calling in one place, he calls heaven and earth to witness. And here he's calling the mountains and the earth to witness what God has to say. We know that they can't hear. We know mountains do not hear. But in the book of Isaiah, time and uh, at least once or twice, he says, I call heaven and earth to witness. In other words, he's saying that I want the whole universe to witness what is taking place. And that's what he's saying here about this controversy with his people. And so it says here that the Lord hath a controversy, the Lord's controversy. And then verse 2, it says, for the Lord hath a controversy. And notice it says, with his people. He claimed them as his own. He still acknowledges them as his people. And then he goes on to say he will plead with Israel. He'll make a plea to them to turn from their sins, to listen to his word. And you know, God always has a controversy with those who walk in disobedience to his word. Whether it's Israel of old or you and I today. We cannot walk in harmony with God and please God if we do not listen to his word, if we're disobedient to his word, even this day and hour, as they did of old. When we become disobedient, you know, Amos says, I believe it's Amos 3, verse 3. He says, can two walk together except they be agreed? And we know that the Bible teaches that men may walk with God. That is, in harmony and fellowship with God. If you remember of old, the Bible says that Enoch walked with God and was not found, for God took him. So Enoch walked with God, didn't he? And you know, we have this excuse that, well, if the world wasn't so wicked and if my... 
people around me were not so wicked and the community was not so wicked and the, the whole nation was not so wicked, I could walk with God. But if you remember when Enoch walked with God, in Noah's day, when there was wickedness that covered the earth, and here was one man that was singled out and says, and Enoch walked with God. And he walked with God in the most wicked generation. Of course, we know that the last days are compared to the days of Noah by the Lord. He said that the last days will be like the days of Noah. And there will be wickedness. But let's not try to use that for an excuse. Because every man, every individual has, a, has the ability to either decide to walk with God or not to walk with God. And God will give him the power to do exactly that. If you want to walk with God, you may do it. You say, well, it's hard. Well, sure, it's hard for anyone to resist all temptation, overcome the sins of the flesh and the world and the devil around about us as a roaring lion. It's difficult for anyone to fight this fight of faith. But on the other hand, we may win if we'll just keep on fighting and try it. You know, Paul told Timothy, he says, fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life. There's something that men and women need to grasp at. And of course, that is the uh, that is eternal life and the blessings of hereafter. And you know, the reason is stated almost here in this verse. The reason of the Lord's controversy is that it's disobedience to His Word and not hearing His Word. That's why He says, Hear ye now what the Lord saith. Hear ye now. They evidently hadn't been hearing up till now. So when God calls people to revive or calls them back to repentance and back to return to Himself, He calls them in a way that, that He wants them to give heed to His Word. When people start obeying God's Word, then things will be better. And when they disobey God's Word, they're going to get worse. But as we already said, he says in verse 1, Arise, contend thou before the mountains, and let the hills hear thy voice. Hear ye, O mountains, the Lord's controversy. And ye strong foundations of the earth, for the Lord hath a controversy with His people, and He will plead with Israel. He's going on down to say that what He will do. And so the word of the Lord is to be the basis of settling all controversy. When people return to what God says. You know, all the prophets of old, they'd say, Thus saith the Lord. And they would repeat what God wants them to do. Back in the book of Deuteronomy, and remember he set the mountain, there's two mountains set on uh, juxtaposition to each other, opposite of each other. And they were called uh, Gerizim and Ebal, was it? And there was one amount of blessing and amount of cursing. And so God has set before us the choice of blessings or cursings. And which will we choose? It's up to us. And so his word is the basis of settling these controversies that we have with God or the Lord's controversy with us. And it's by the word of the Lord that men shall live or it's by the word of the Lord that men shall be judged. Remember, Jesus said that the same word that I've spoken unto you shall judge you at the last day. He said, I'm not going to judge you, but the same word. Of course, he literally is the judge of the last day. But he says that he is going to call the word and our words and our actions to his word and his commands into judgment at the last day. Now, if you notice the last part of verse 1, I mean verse 2, it says, And he will plead with Israel. Now, look at verse 3. O my people, what have I done to thee? And wherein have I wearied thee? Testify against me. If you have anything to say about me of a negative way, he says, what have I done? He says, if you can pull anything out to tell what I've done against you, what I've done to you, and wherein I've wearied thee, he says, testify against me. It would be pretty hard for any." People to testify against God, wouldn't would it not? The Bible says, you know, Paul speaks of it in Hebrews 11 
in context with this too, Israel and, and, and the Gentiles as well, all of us, he says, who hath known the mind of the Lord or who hath been his counselor? Did he ask anything of us to, to give him counsel of how he should be guided? Can we, can we ever have a word of testimony against God and his goodness and his mercy and his grace and his love and his long suffering? I mean, you see, God has every characteristic of, of holiness, of righteousness, of goodness. We call these divine attributes. And if God has these things in Himself, who can speak against all that good? And so that's what He's doing. He's challenging His people. He says, Oh, my people, what have I done to thee? Have I done anything? And wherein have I wearied thee? And you know, people do become tired of God. Why do they become tired of God? Because they want to do their own thing. And they don't have patience to do the will of God and follow the Word of God. So, because sometimes it's not so, uh, it's a long pathway. And sometimes the pathway may seem steep. May, it may seem rugged. Remember that God led the children of Israel 40 years in the wilderness. And you know the reason? He had many reasons behind it, but of their rebellion and disobedience and unbelief. That was the, the core of it. But there were other uh, contributing factors. First of all, let's think of this. They had come to a place that they were only 11 days' journey. 11 days' journey. You read in Deuteronomy, I think it's the first chapter probably. There's 11 days' journey. And it took them 40 years because they wandered about in the wilderness. And God led them around the long way. I mean, that's pretty long, isn't it? Long way. Let's say we were going from here to Alamogordo. We know the road what 50 miles, roughly. Not that now since they shortened some of the curves. But anyway, anyway, suppose we decided to go to Alamogordo by, by way of Albuquerque and, and uh, then back by San Antonio and back down through, you know, and across and Las Cruces and then come back up to Alamogordo. It'd be kind of a long ways around. Wouldn't it? And so you could go a long ways to go a short distance. And then he told it in his providence he had a purpose for it. You know what he said? He said, I'm not going to lead you in to Canaan's land immediately. You're going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Because he said, if you get over in that land, the beasts of the field will devour you. God has a purpose in everything, even though it's tied in with our rebellion. You know, sometimes people say, well, you know, I wouldn't have to... It would have worked out better if if I'd have just uh, gone the way God wanted me to go. Well, it might have, and it might have been in His providence that He used your disobedience for your good in the long run and in the end. That's, that's the hardest thing for us to understand. Why do we have to suffer these things that we suffer and go the long way? Because it's in God's plan many times. And His overall plan even takes into consideration our rebellion and our failures. Isn't it an amazing thing that God takes into consideration the mishaps that we have along the way to work His uh, glory and, and good to the end? Look at Israel nationally. We're talking about them here, and they were scattered abroad because they failed to follow God. And yet in the end, you read in the book of Revelation, their restoration, and God predicts even in these prophets we've been studying that the remnant will be saved. But they'll be saved out of what? Great travail. In our last chapter, it said, Before Zion travail, she brought forth children. And we referred to Isaiah, where it said, uh, Who has heard such thing? He never heard of such thing as that. Because we know a woman does not bring forth children until there's travail. 
And their travail will be in the tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble that's in the future. And they're going to have to face that because of their rejection of Christ as a nation and as a people. You say, well, some of them are saved. That's true. Some among them. But this is the day and age when all the Gentiles will be taken out. He'll be taking out a people for his name. And we referred to that in the book of Amos, remember, during this time. And he's taking out a people for his name out of a Gentile population of the world. And then someday, and we read it in Romans chapter 11 in our last lesson, all Israel shall be saved when they'll turn away from their sins and repent and turn back to God. You know, God's word is, is very definite. And everything that's said here is going to happen. It's going to come to pass just like God has it written down here in, the, in His Word. Just like He's prophesied in all of these prophets, whether they be major prophets or minor prophets. And as we said once before, the minor prophets are only minor because of the size or the volume of the, of the uh, writings, and the number of letters and verses and words, you might say. The content, the book of it. But they're not minor in many ways because they sometimes give us more insight than some of the other prophets. So never consider them of little value just because we call them the minor prophets. So let's look at this. It says in verse uh, 3, O my people, what have I done unto thee? And wherein have I wearied thee? Testify against me. Look at verse 4. For I brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. He's reminding them. He reminds them of their deliverance from Egypt. He still stretches out his arms to receive them. O my people, verse 3. And he calls them to return. But then in doing that, he reminds them of their deliverance from Egypt. You know, sometimes God's people have to be reminded of what he's done for them. He says, For I brought thee up out of the land of Egypt and redeemed thee out of the house of, of servants. And I sent before thee Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Think of that. He brought them up. He delivered them by power and redeemed them by blood. Remember the blood of the Passover lamb? So it's by blood and by power that they were redeemed. And by the way, it's by blood and by power that we're redeemed. It's by the blood of Christ and by the power of God that brings home to us the conviction that we're sinners and He delivers us when we repent of sin by His power. And that's exactly the way they were. And Egypt there is a picture of the world. And we're delivered from the grasp of the world and the ruler of the darkness of this world by blood and by power. For I brought thee up out of the land of Egypt and redeemed thee out of the house of servants. Now look, He not only delivered them and liberated them, but, and I sent before thee Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. He led them. You know, when God delivers, He doesn't leave us to our own. When God does something for us in the way of delivering us, He doesn't leave us to our own. He has a leader and a guide and a way of path. He still has a pathway that we're to walk. I think of the three ones that uh, Jesus raised from the dead in the New Testament. Think of it for a moment. He raised the widow of Nain's son, didn't he? And what did he do to him? He returned him to the mother to take care of him. He raised Jairus' daughter, age of 12. And when, when he resurrected this little girl, damsels, damsel, I say unto thee, arise, he commanded them to give her something to eat. Look at the picture now. The first thing for a newborn babe in Christ is to be fed. He commanded them to feed her. Give her something to eat. The widow of Nain's son. And notice that in getting, this is such a wonderful lesson, I don't want to pass over it lightly. But remember, Jairus' daughter had just died. The widow of Nain's son, they were on the way to the burial. He was in the coffin. They were taking him to burial. So the degree of corruption, one that had just died, 
the little child, raised up, Jairus' daughter, give her something to eat. The widow of Nain's son, the only hope for this mother. This is all the supply of anyone to help her. And what did the Lord command? He was returned to his mother to serve, to help, to provide for her. Then look at the other one, Lazarus, who had been dead four days already. And he was already buried. And Jesus stood before that tomb, I think it's in John chapter 11. And he commanded them to roll away the stone. He didn't have to roll it away, but he gave them something to do. It increased their faith. So they rolled away the stone. And what, what did he say? He said, Lazarus, come forth. And the Bible says, he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot in grave clothes. And then he said to them, loose him. Loose him and let him go. Set him free. In each instance, it was a different uh, situation as to what would happen. And remember later on, Lazarus sat at the table. And many looked at Lazarus and said, Here's a man that was dead for four days and he's living. And many believe because of Lazarus. I guess so. If we ever saw anything like that in our day, we'd believe something, wouldn't we? I'll tell you, it would open your eyes up. And yet we have people that claim stuff like that, but... I've never seen it, and I don't know if you have, but I think Jesus is the only one that does that kind of thing as far as I'm concerned. But anyway, what I want you to see is there's always a purpose for what God does. And He brought them up out of the land of Egypt and delivered them from bondage. Look at verse 4 again, 6 verse 4. And the whole lesson is here, He didn't leave them just to no leadership or guidance or anything. He says, And I sent before thee Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Moses, their deliverer, their leader. Aaron, the one that ministered to them in worship. And Miriam, the one that was a, a specially a, led the, the women, the leader of the, the ladies. They all had a leader and a guide. And then he says in verse 5, and we said in the last part of verse 2, and look at it briefly, he will plead with Israel. Now in verse 5, he does plead with them. Look at verse 5. He says, O my people, remember now what Balak king of Moab consulted, and what Balaam the son of Beor answered him from Shittim unto Gilgal, that ye may know the righteousness of the Lord. Do you remember this, the story there? First of all, let's look at what tenderness God does in dealing with His people when He says, O my people. I mean, this is a cry of tenderness and no love. He says, O my people. And then He says, Remember now. And He calls them back to Balaam. Does what did Balaam do? You know, Balak had told him to curse Israel. And when it came right down to it, even though that was his mission, he couldn't do it. God said, and Balaam says, how can I curse those whom God has blessed? So instead of cursing them, he blessed them. You see, what's all, all determined by some may never be carried out if God intervenes. And he couldn't curse, and though he was hired out to do it, he was willing to do it. Oh, Balaam. He, he was paid the wages of unrighteousness, so to speak, to do what he couldn't do because God got a hold of him and he made him bless the people instead of curse them. That's an amazing thing. Here's a man that's getting paid to do the wrong thing and God intervenes to where and he knows it's the wrong thing and he's determined, he's already agreed to do it and yet he can't do it. You go back and read the story. And he blesses them instead. So he's, God says here in verse 5 by Micah, he says, oh my people, remember. I want you to remember what happened back there. How there was one hired to curse you and he couldn't do it because uh, God said bless. And the last part of verse 5 says that you may know the righteousness of the Lord. That God is going to contend for His people and plead with His people uh, regardless of what uh, others may do. It doesn't make any difference. People may cause storms in life and troubles in life and problems in life. 
But God's going to work His way. I've been through a few of them, and I'm sure most of you have. But it's still God's will, and He'll work His way for you if you'll walk in His pathway. I used to sing a song, and I love to sing it. When the storms of life are raging, stand by me. When the world is tossing me like a ship upon the sea, thou that rulest winds and waters, stand by me. Another verse goes, stanza goes, in the midst of tribulation, Stand by me. Another one says, In the midst of persecution, stand by me. That's a wonderful hymn. Someday we'll get Ron Sharon or, or uh, Curtis, some of you, to sing the special on that. Stand by me. It's a, it may not be in some of the hymns, but it is in some of them. But uh, the thing about it is, God will stand by us if we'll do what uh, He wants us to in the midst of tribulation, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of false and failures. And then there's one verse. When I'm growing old and feeble, stand by me. And the older you get, the more you want God to stand by you. When you grow old and feeble. Because you need someone to stand by you. Alright, let's look at verse 6. It says, uh, Wherewith shall... Now, we said verse verse 6 through 7 is uh, Israel's answer to God concerning this controversy. Look at verse 6 and 7. Wherewith shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? In other words, they're asking the question. Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with ten thousand of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? That was their... Really... Their answer was in the form of a question. They didn't know how they were going to settle this controversy. Because God had before told them that He was sick of some of their burnt offerings and their sacrifices and what they did. You know why God was sick of it? Because they didn't have any repentance of heart. It was all outward form and outward worship. Now, God will not accept that. Now, had their heart been in it, then the sacrifices would have been acceptable. But since their heart was not in it, the sacrifice was not acceptable. If you turn, I believe you'll find it in Psalm 73. Glance back to Psalm 73. And I believe we'll find the, the sacrifices mentioned in the last part of it. Psalm 73. No, that's not the one. But there's one of the Psalms. Let's see. Psalm 51 then. Let's try Psalm 51. Psalm 51. And notice what it says here. I'm pretty sure it's 51. Okay. This is David's psalm of repentance. Now you watch this. Watch this. Uh, let's start at verse 1. Just read it briefly. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. He says, For I acknowledge my transgression and my sin is ever before me. He was conscious of it. Against thee, the only have I sinned. Now he sinned against Uriah, sinned against Bathsheba, sinned against an unborn child, and the child that was born and died as a result of David's sin. But he says, against thee and thee only have I sinned. See, all sins against God. Uh, And done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest, and be clear when thou judgest. David knew that God would judge him. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. He means means he was born a, a sinner. It was not a sin to bring him into the world. But he was born of a sinful nature. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. Now notice, he says, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness, that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Hide thy face uh, from my sins, and blot out 
all mine iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, and uphold me with thy free spirit. Then, look at verse 13. Then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted to thee. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God, thou God of my salvation. My tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. O Lord, open thou my lips, and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. For thou desirest not sacrifice. Look here. Here you back to the sacrifices that Micah mentions. The sacrifices and burnt offerings. Thou desirest not sacrifice, else I would, would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. God was sick of that because there was no repentance. The sacrifices... Of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. Now look, do good in thy good pleasure unto Zion, and build again, build thou the walls of Jerusalem. Then, this last verse, then shalt thou be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. When the heart's right, God is pleased with these sacrifices. With a burnt offering and whole burnt offering, then shall they offer bullocks upon thine altar. So you see, when everything is straightened out and there's true repentance involved, that God's designated worship with sacrifices and offerings would be acceptable. And David realized that unless he got his heart right with God, God would not be pleased with these. Now back in Micah chapter 6. Micah chapter 6. When they're giving the answer to this controversy, verse 6, Wherewith shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before Him with the burnt offerings, with the calves of a year old? Now, they knew better than that if there was no repentance in it. Then they said, Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I give... Now, look, even this kind of sacrifice, shall I give... My firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. In other words, can I even give my firstborn child as a sacrifice? God would never condone that. Would never accept that. He would never accept that. And they were asking all these questions. What would it do to please God? Well, he wanted repentance. He wanted return. Now look at verse 8. Verse 8 shows us the moral demands of God. Verses Verse 8. He has showed me, O man, what is good and what doth the Lord require of thee. But to what? Look. To do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. What does God require? To do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. Now some have taken this verse right here as an Old, as an old Testament gospel. But let me explain something. If God requires this of us, listen very carefully, if God requires this of us, to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. According to the New Testament, the gospel teaches us that except a man be born again, he cannot even do these things. So this is no replacement for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the fact that a person has to be changed in order to meet these conditions, these moral demands of God. I mean, there's a lot of people who would like to walk humbly with God, but they're not able to in their own nature. The sinful nature is not able to do that. The Bible says the natural man understandeth not the things of God. It says they're foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them because they're they're spiritually discerned. The natural man does not receive these things. So there has to be a change in man in order to meet these requirements. So this is not a gospel that uh, would replace the New Testament gospel of Christ by any means. Now then, in verses 9... 
through 16, we find the judgment. The Lord must judge them because of sin. The Lord's voice crieth unto the city, and the man of wisdom shall see thy name. Hear ye the rod, and who hath appointed it? Listen to God who hath appointed the rod, the rod of correction. Are there yet treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked, and the scant measure that is abominable? Sure there were. They still remain. Shall I count them pure with wicked balances, and with the bag of deceitful weights? What does he say? When people go out and in their trade, they have deceitful weights. Remember the old scales, and they put the balance the weights on one side and the other? Well, it all depends on what kind of weights you've got on one side as to how it will balance out with what you've got in the, the basket or the, or the tray or whatever it is. And if they're not just weights, if you have some heavy weights over here and the person puts all the fruit in this little uh, tray and these weights bear it down and it costs you for three pounds when you're only getting one, that's what he's talking about here is the scheme and the wickedness that they had in their trade. Read that again. Look at it. It says, verse 11, Shall I count them pure with the wicked balances? No. They had judgment coming. Correction. And the rod coming. And with a bag of deceitful weights, for the rich men thereof are full of violence. And the inhabitants thereof have spoken lies. And their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. Find they're crooked. They speak crooked. They, they tell lies. Therefore also will I make them sick in smiting thee, in making thee desolate because of thy sins. Thou shalt eat but not be satisfied. God says, you know, eat but not be satisfied. And he says, and thy casting down shall be in the midst of, of thee. And thou shalt take hold but shall not deliver. And that which thou deliverest will I give up to the sword. They think they're winning, but they're losing. I can't hardly wait to get over to Haggai, Habakkuk, Haggai. When we talk of some more of this kind of same thing, I believe it's one that says you, they earn money and they put put their money in their pockets and their pockets have holes. And it all goes out the bottom. Well, you know, if you, if you just put it through there, it doesn't do any good. I remember one time in using that illustration, I was preaching in Mount Pleasant, Texas, and I had a hole in my pocket. And uh, so I, w- I walked over the side of the pulpit and I dropped my pocket knife in there and it came out below there. And, uh, and uh, one lady called my wife that afternoon and says, Louise, what are you doing? She says, I'm patching holes in, <laughs> in the pockets. She, knew, she was just teasing her a little bit. But you see, it doesn't make any difference how much you... Earn. It's how much you can keep and enjoy and be satisfied with. Did you know that? It's management and contentment with whatever. That's why Paul said, I've learned that whatsoever state I'm in, therewith to be content. And you know, if you don't have as much, you learn to manage it better. You learn to manage what you have. And when we, when we increase in the amount we earn, let's learn to manage that as well. That's considered God's blessings. And He will bless and He will take care of you. You know, God has stores of blessings for each and every one of you. If we, Every one of us, if we'll just do what He wants us to do. And you'd be surprised how many blessings. He has plenty of them. Okay? In verse 15 it says, Thou shalt sow, but thou shalt not reap. Boy, I've been through that. Go out on some of those old dry land farms and you sow, and boy, if you don't get some rain, if you don't get everything right, you might have a, planted enough wheat out there for a 20 to 30 bushel to acre crop, 
And you might get five or six and it filled with sunflowers. You know, flowers all growing up through it and weeds and everything else. When you start to harvest, you don't even know if you're going to get to sell it. But you see, there's a lot of things God can do to bless you. He says, Thou shalt sow, but thou shalt not reap. And he says, Thou shalt tread the olives, but thou shalt not anoint thee with oil. And sweet wine, and thou shalt not drink wine. For the statutes of Amra are kept. What is he saying? The false gods, the idols, they had kept their statutes, but they wouldn't listen to God. And he says, And all the works of the house of Ahab. Ahab was the wickedest king of Israel. And he says, All the works of the house of Ahab. And you walk in their counsels. You walk after the most wicked that you can imagine. And he says, That I should make thee a desolation and the inhabitants thereof and hissing. Therefore ye shall bear the reproach of my people. You have to bear the consequences of, of sinning against God. And you know, the Bible tells us, if you want to turn over in the book of Hebrews, and I'll close with this verse, the 12th chapter. Turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. And I want you to get this. <clears throat> verse 5. It says, And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? You know all of us correct our children, right? But if you be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are you bastards and not sons. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits, that is God, and live? For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit. What God, when God chastens us, is for our profit, our good. That ye might be partakers, that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now look at verse 11. Now, no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous. We don't enjoy being chastened, do we? But grievous. It usually feels grievous. Nevertheless, afterward, I love this, it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. If you will listen to it and let God work in through it, you'll be blessed from it and by it. Thank you for your patience and your kind attention.